Welcome to this edition of Keeping It Real, panel discussions with entrepreneurs and enterprise leaders who have shared their business stories in our guest blog and join us to discuss topics trending in conversation. This month, as we celebrate women in business, our guests are not only successful award-winning entrepreneurs, but advocates for breaking barriers. Our topic, breaking the glass ceiling. And each of our guests will share their personal and professional experience as we recognize and celebrate entrepreneurship. And I'd like to introduce you to our panel. Susan Crossman is an author, editor, and content creator from Toronto, Ontario. Julie Cole is an author, speaker, and co-founder of Mabel's Labels in Hamilton, Ontario. Jackie Lappin is an author, speaker, and the leader's booking expert who joins us from Westlake Village in California. And Anthea Mumby, a consultant working with families in business from Waterloo, Ontario. Welcome. Good morning. Hello. Glad to, to be here. here. You know, I'm so thrilled to have you powerhouse entrepreneurs joining us to have a conversation about breaking the glass ceiling, because I know that all of us have been in business for a, a few years, and I'd like you to be able to share your experiences with our viewing and listening audience. So Julie, you started your business in the basement with some of your friends, meeting the need to put labels on your children's clothing. You've grown that business into a multi-million dollar organization and actually successfully sold it. So what would be one of the barriers that you think that you have broken as a woman in business? Right, okay. Well, I think we all have lots to say on this topic. Um, I think I'm going to focus mine around the dual role of um, being an entrepreneur and also being a mother. Um, as we all know, women uh, are still carrying the emotional, physical, and mental load of parenthood. Um, we just know that statistically. We know that there are more um, there are more CEOs in Canada named James than there are women CEOs, um, which is a shocking thing to recognize. Um, so I just want to talk for a few minutes about how motherhood impacted my journey and how I feel like that was. I don't know, maybe like a contribution I made. First of all, when I, um, you know, in the earlier days of my motherhood, I was actually a law student. And I remember giving birth to my daughter Posey on International Women's Day, which makes total sense. Wow. I know. And then uh, being at a feminist legal theory class a week later with baby in hand. Um, and then I went and got called to the bar uh, when I was 38 weeks pregnant with my third. So I was already motherhood was a part of my, my journey um, even back then. And then motherhood changed um, the way my career trajectory went. We started Mabel's Labels at the time. My eldest child had been diagnosed with autism, and I didn't think the traditional workforce was going to suit me any longer. And I feel like at that point, it was like, you know what? If the traditional workforce is not going to suit women who are mothers, then I'm going to make my work suit me, and I'm going to create a culture that shows that women can be productive in unusual spaces and unusual times and un unusual ways. Like I was, you know, making business plans at play dates and changing diapers and changing the world all at the same time. So I think, you know, a big part of my mission has been, you know, what women can do incredible things outside of the traditional times that the workforce has put out there for us. And uh, it's my, mission to keep spreading that word and, and, and having a work culture that honors women and mothers and caregivers. 
So do you, do you support this culture at Mabel's Labels, obviously, because clearly, you know, you've got a manufacturing facility, you've got a sales force, you, you know, you've got it all. So how do you incorporate that? Give, give our viewing and listening audience a tip. What are one of the things that you have to do in order to, you know, support that culture? Right. Well, first of all, we don't do sludge. So, you know, if somebody walks in the office at 930, we're not like nice of you to make it. We're like, hey, welcome to the day, because we don't know what they've gone through. Maybe their kid vomited on the way to the daycare drop-off, then they have to find daycare. They're already worn down, they've already put in a full day, and then they walk into that kind of sludge of, oh, nice of you to join us. We don't do that. People manage their own time. As long as they're productive and getting their work done, we don't care what they do and how they get it done. We do not judge people by how long their butts are in seats at their desk at headquarters. Um, as long as you're making meeting your goals, that's all we care about. We never have people have to lie to us about, you know, um, wanting to go to see their kids' Christmas concert and pretending somebody's sick or that they're not feeling well. Just go and tell us about it. So it's it's about you know leading by example and starting a culture. And it was funny too, Trish, like when when COVID happened and all these companies were like, oh, we got to figure out how people can work from home. How are we going to? They don't know how to do this. We were like, it's our time to shine. Our people know how to do this already. This has been a part of our culture for twenty years. Right, right. Now, you know, the ladies, the other ladies in the in the group who have children, what do you have to say to Julie? Because I mean, I'm I don't have any kids, so I can't contribute to the mother concept. I can certainly talk about the sludge culture, um, but I can't contribute to the mother. But Trish, keep in mind, even aside from mothers, like my childhood, my, my childless friends are still very involved. Aunties are very involved. They have best friends with children. They have pets. They have elderly parents. There's still a lot of caregiving that right. childless women do. Right. That's so true. Ladies, does anyone want to comment? Mm -hmm. Anthea or Susan or Jackie? Yeah, I'll jump in. I, I also have three kids and I haven't had a J-O-B and a corporate set up for many, 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 many years. So I, I'm with you, sister. Like, I think the way to go is to be independent. It, it's challenging for sure, but balancing all of the demands of children, especially children with needs, which many of us have, is it just doesn't fit inside the corporate box. You, you, I don't think you can make it fit. It's, uh, you know, I think being a trailblazer as a parent is a really, really, really important way for the future. Yeah, and I, I definitely relate to that concept. I think that I was definitely a trailblazer in my own way. Um, kind of like Julie, like our family business started in the basement of our home. And, you know, as time went on and I had my daughter um, set up structure that would work best for my family. Now, Jackie, you had an opportunity in, when you started your first career to be involved in the sports world as a, a real trailblazer as a woman in that field. Give us a little bit of an indication as to how you sort of feel that you broke the glass ceiling by being in an area that was traditionally really taken over by men. Well, in the early days when I declared and decided that I wanted to be a sports writer, there were no women sports writers. So I had no role models. But, you know, I've been, one of the things that I would tell people is listen to your own voice, listen to that drummer in your head, and not what society tells you. And so right from the beginning, I knew I was different. My peer group thought I was nuts 
and didn't really want anything to do with me because I was so driven to what I wanted to do, which was to be a woman sports writer. And so I, I studied, I focused, I read the LA Times every day, I read sports books. And at 20, I was at the Detroit Free Press. 21, I was at the Associated Press and on the front pages of the LA Times. 22, I was co-hosting Dodger Duggan on Channel 11. And uh, by the end of that year, I was at the Washington Post. And so, um, you know, I, and all along the way, people thought I was an anomaly and assumed that I was incompetent. I remember, remember, I remember it when I, I got to USC and I, my sports editor was standing over my shoulders, assuming that he'd given me a token responsibility. And he goes, oh my God, she can write. Um, and so I defied expectations all the way along. People assumed that I was just there to, you know, uh, to be pretty and, and make it, you know, make myself a, a, a f focus of attention. But when they saw that I was talented and I was better than most of them, um, that was really the fun stuff. And I'll never forget, um, I was at the Detroit Free Press and, you know, they didn't want to give me assignments. They assumed, you know, that, you know, I would be a drain on them. And I finally said to them, look, um, it's my day off. There's the, you know, uh, race down on the Detroit River, the powerboat race. Give me an assignment. And they said, all right, well, you can do the losers. We've already got the assignment, you know, assigned to the other two guys, those game and the, and the winners. So I said, OK, so I go on down there and um, the guy who had the winner's story ended up on page four. I ended up on page one. Woohoo! Um, good for you. <laughs> pay attention to me. And then, um, uh, you know, when they decided to take me down to uh, the stadium, Tiger Stadium, there had been no woman ever in the press box at Tiger, Tiger Stadium, except for teletype operators, you know. In those old days, that's when they had, you know, how they uh, recorded the results. And so um, I'll never forget, I, I was hosted by the columnist in our paper, um, and they, by the way, they had to go through all kinds of hoops just to get me that pass because they knew that the, the man who ran the sport, the um, press box would never let me in. So they went to the ownership. And so uh, I'll never forget walking into the press box, uh, the, the press lounge for my meal. And it was got lots of guys chattering. The doors opened and there was dead silence. And um, after I sat down for a few minutes, some of the guys came up to me and said, look, we know you belong here. We've been reading you. And then I got to the press box and it became quite a circus because the man who controlled the press box didn't want me there, was very vociferous to the point you could hear him screaming on the field. And then he um, and by the time this was over, it was such a to do that um, the at that time, baseball, national baseball was only on one day of the week. It was on Saturdays. And the the one of the hosts came in to me and said, Can, you know, will you stay around tomorrow afternoon? I want to put you on the television game of the week. And so here I was on national television for just breaking the press box barrier. So um, my life was filled with those kinds of stories. And then when I decided that I wanted to go into the sports PR business, it was much the same. There were no women that were running sports PR agencies at the time. They were all dominated by men. They assumed I would fail. And needless to say, 20 years later, I had a world-class client list, including the National Hockey League and Coyote Motorsports and the Los Angeles Marathon and Golf Channel and Seagram's and on Showtime. And then we became one of the largest agencies in cable television because we springboarded from pay-per-view boxing. By the way, I was the queen of boxing in the 1980s into that. And then I also ended my career um, with in the PR business, uh, having uh, launching the worldwide poker phenomenon, which again talk about dominated by men. 
um, you know, we, we launched, the, you know, it became a seven year phenomenon that we drove. So uh, all of those years really, um, you know, I was constantly facing uh, under expectations and breaking those barriers. And that's what I would say. Yes, we women have to be better than the guys. That is the, that is the truth of the situation. Just follow your own lane. Do what you do, do it well, and the recognition will come, the doors will open. Well, you know, that's probably really good advice because I think that all of us, you know, we're all nodding our heads because we can certainly relate to Jackie's story about, you know, being in situations where we were kind of um, the underdog, so to speak, and having to do things better and, and than the men and who are our counterparts. I mean, that was the reason why I left corporate because I just thought, I can't do this anymore. You know, I feel like I'm beating my head against the wall. I'm going to start, go out, segue out and start doing my own thing. Um, but, you know, what I love is that both Julie and Jackie took the bull by the horns and they said, you know what, I have to do what's right for me and, and my family. And that means I have to step outside the box. And, you know, it, maybe, Julie, you can chime in and share in terms of uh, I've heard you speak where you said, you know, I had somebody say to me as I walked into a meeting, you know, um, you know who's looking after the kids? And you said, uh, nobody ever asked my husband that. So it, does that, do you find that that's changed throughout the years or is that still something that you come up against? No, that is, um, that's definitely still out there. Like that is, I, anytime I speak in an event in the evening, um, I mean, my kids are getting a little older now, but certainly in the old days, it would be, you know, who's watching the kids. and. And I did ask um, Daddy O, you know, what what happens when you go to events? What do you say when people say who's got the kids? And he never, he said, I've never been asked that question. And I said, I've never not been asked that question. Isn't that and, amazing? Yeah, and you know, and it is that whole thing too about you know, people are like, oh, that's so great that he's staying home and and uh, you know taking care of the kids while you have to do that work trip. I'm like, yeah, he's parenting. <laughs> you know, like that's I didn't do this on my own being like <laughs> right but it is it's that double standard and yeah. and even along with that notion I often talk about having it all and it seems like a very gender notion and it's like it, it's on women we have to like what is it this having it all is it we have jobs we have kids we have white picket fence we go to yoga we have I don't know maybe good sex life we've got you know all the things but they don't ask men if, if right. you know, there's no having it all with men. And that's because there's an assumption that there's a woman taking care of all the things at home. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Now, Susan, in, in your career, I love the fact that you do this storytelling. You know, you as an editor, you're helping people like Julie and Jackie and Anthea and I write those books and get the written word out there. So what types of glass ceilings do you feel that you've broken in your career? Oh, I just love this conversation, Trish. It, it, I, I had to really think about this because I haven't been in a corporate environment for many, many years. I've, I've always driven my own train. However, the glass ceiling that I think that I have really busted through to a large extent is the one I imposed upon myself. Ah. And I, uh, so my history, I've always been a professional writer. I started my career in journalism, Jackie. I, I, I wasn't in sports. I was in um, regular news. I had a news beat at a number of very uh, reputable Canadian publications and then ended up in government communications and corporate communications and marketing, you know, always, always, always writing. But the dream had been to write a book. So I started that book when I was married to my second husband and he was my greatest supporter. And, you know, he turned to me one day, he said, you know, you've been talking about writing a book for a very long time. 
And I said, yeah, I really want to write a book. And he just said, well, what's stopping you? To the point of, you know, like for him, you just go write a book. Like there, there's, there's no reason not to. And really the reason was me, the, what I was stopping myself from writing that book. So I started the book and I was home with my kids for about 10 years in there and very busy to Julie's point, you know, uh, lunches and cooking and cleaning and doctor's appointments and school volunteer work. And that was the whole focus of my life really was my family kind of playing at writing this book and still not validating that it was a worthy thing for me to want to be doing it. I didn't see how it was going to put dollars in the family war chest. You know, it was time away from the kids and my husband's satisfaction. It was, you know, it, it just didn't seem valid to me until my husband got cancer and died. And he was diagnosed with uh, terminal stomach cancer. And three months later, he was gone, which required an enormous reconfiguration of my entire life and and my sense of who I really was and I think that was really where where I came face to face with that glass ceiling was I'd been by that point plugging away at this novel that I'd been writing for 10 or 11 years and suddenly realized there might not be enough time to finish this book what if I die before I know whether I can finish writing my book so I really focused on that. But at the same time, I had two little kids. My kids were seven and nine, my youngest at the time. They had been pretty traumatized by their, their, their father's illness and his subsequent death. So I had that ball to manage. And I also had a physically disabled mother living 15 minutes away from me who required a lot of my time and attention. So for me, the game became about, okay, how do I, how do I have some dreams, first of all, because I... I had this one little dream of writing a book, but other than that, my life had not flowered within me yet. And so I had to figure out, okay, what do I want? How do I want to do this? How am I going to manage looking after my mom, raising my children, making sure that there's food on the table and also fulfilling my own destiny and whatever that might be. So that to me became a, a lot of the focus of my life was was inventing my life and figuring out what I wanted and, and finding a way to build a successful business around writing. Because, I mean, the other piece of that is I'd always been told writers don't make any money. You'll never make any money. What, you want to be a writer? What? Writers can't survive, support a family. And, and it, I really wanted to prove everybody wrong. <laughs> well, you did. You certainly and did, I Susan. Did. Yeah, we're certainly <laughs> yeah. thrilled for that. Yeah. So now, that, that was it. I'd, I'd say the glass ceiling was inside of my own. Your head, head. yeah. Yeah. Now, ladies, I just want to ask a quick question before we get to Anthea's breaking up the glass ceiling. Did any of you ever have a mentor that sort of gave you the, was your silent cheerleader or was the person who said, you know, yes, you can do this, you know, and I'm going to help you do that? Jackie, did you have a mentor? My mentor was really my father. Ah. Who, you know, when most fathers w w heard their daughter saying, you know, I want to be a sports writer, would have normally said, well, honey, why be a nurse? You know, that's a woman's professional. My dad said, you do whatever you want to do and we'll be there to support you. And he was an entrepreneur most of the, you know, m my life. Um, and so I got that gene from him. And so I, he encouraged me. And so he gave me guidance. Um, he was gone too soon. Right when I opened my business, he passed. Um, but, um, you know, he was always there on my shoulder, you know, saying, be, live in integrity, do what's right. 
Uh, stand up for yourself. Be courageous. And that's what I have already always done. And yes, there were wonderful people along the way that I sought out for counsel. Um, and I've had, you know, selective coaches. I've never had somebody overall guiding me. To that extent, it's been somewhat of a lonely journey. But um, I've always had an amazing team around me, no matter what I did. And that really sustained me a lot. Right. And what about you, Julie? Yeah, it's funny how important family is, right? Like, I feel like for me, um, it was my grandmother and she she was an old Irish granny and, uh, you know, moved, um, moved to Canada in 1950, raised her family here. And uh, she just was always like born before her time. Like she just always was so confident in her girls and like we could do anything. And I actually remember telling her I was pregnant. I didn't want to tell her I was pregnant with my sixth child because I knew she'd be, and she, like she grabbed my arm and said, you girls don't have to do this anymore. You know, like she was one of 21 kids, you know, so she saw how, um, you know, how rewarding motherhood was, but also how, um, how much it took. Right. So she always was so supportive of our education, of our work, um, everything we did. And she also was full of good advice. Um, she would tell us, she would always tell us like that we could, we could do absolutely anything, but she was a real believer in being humble as well. And her line, she would say is, um, you know, Julie, you're as good as the rest of them and better than none. <laughs> oh, that's a really good, that's, that's food for thought, isn't it? Yeah. That's really good advice. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, Julie. Now, Anthea, you took over the family business and I know you started, you, you've mentioned that, you know, your business started in the basement too, very similar to Julie's. And I, uh, now you and your husband were very successful and like Julie, you sold your book of business um, recently and have moved into consulting. So as the child of the entrepreneur and taking over that family business, what barrier did you have to break? Yeah, it was interesting because when I, um, when my husband and I took over that business and we bought that business from my parents at the time, I think I was maybe 34, 35. And so here I was, this very young female principal, um, you know, president of an insurance brokerage, and most of my my peers uh, were, um, yeah, easily twenty to thirty years my senior, um, and that's still the statistic to this day, right? If you look at most uh, broker principals, um, they're typically, you know, men in their their fifties and sixties. So I definitely didn't fit the mold at all of what uh, you know a, an insurance broker principal would look like. Um, but you know, going back to the mentor piece that you were just talking about, and I was reflecting as well, and I was thinking, you know, I would answer the same question as Jackie in terms of you know my dad, right? So you know, and I'm thinking about him a lot today um, because it, it's his 93rd birthday up in heaven. So I'm, I'm thinking about him and the legacy of, you know, everything that, uh, he taught me and, and a lot of it was deeply ingrained into that business and how we ran that business as a values-based organization. Um, so he was very much my, my mentor. And then, um, yeah, then my husband, my husband, you know, since he joined the business with me when our daughter was a year old and, uh, you know, he's always been, um, yeah, part, at times we mentored each other at times it's been that supportive, you know, having that, that someone when you're, you know, that lonely entrepreneur at times, 
and you've got that spouse, that person that's with you, and you've got someone that, you know, you're always going to have that support from. Um, that really helped me in terms of that, you know, breaking that glass ceiling piece and, and just having someone that I knew was always going to be there, you know, my, my biggest fan and, and biggest supporter and, and vice versa as well. For sure. Now, ladies, I'm going to ask you uh, a, a general question. Feel free to jump in. You know, we've all seen changes in leadership, right, over our careers for sure. And a number of young people who are coming into leadership roles, and I certainly agree with Julie, we don't have enough CEOs that are female at this particular point in time. But if there was a skill or a leadership quality that you feel that needs to be honed for those in our viewing and listening audience who may be saying, well, I'm just starting my career or I'm five years into my career, what would that leadership skill be from your perspective that they would need to hone in order to continue with their own success? Um, I, I really think there's a movement now towards leading with empathy. And I think it's very important. I think it's very important that women leaders don't try and lead like men. I think we need to try and lead like us. And you know what they say, you know, um, a leader who doesn't listen eventually has, you know, a team that doesn't speak. And that, uh, you know, you need to you need to know when to get out of your own way. You need to, a real leader um, creates more leaders, not followers. And uh, and leading with empathy is the way to go. Leading with kindness. Jackie, I think resilience is really important because, you know, you can fold really fast when the tough gets gets put on you. Isn't that true? And um, and I think a lot of young people today do. They don't like tough. They, you know, they're going to scoot the other direction if they're faced with adversity. And you cannot build a business without learning how to deal with adversity and persistence and, and getting through it and resilience and rebounding. And that is, I think, an absolutely critical skill, um, you know, to not allow the whatever is pulling you down to take you down. You got to fight it. You got to, you know, find other ways to survive. Uh, that are still in integrity, that still are, um, you know, fulfilling your vision. And, uh, but you have to be adaptable. You can't always stick to what your intention is. You have to be able to change and have that flexibility as well. Right. But you need to stay the course. And, um, and, you know, if you get guidance and you need to, to, you know, push in new directions, that's great. But at least you just keep moving forward. You know, that's really good advice because I think all of us have had to pivot or change our business model over the years, right? I mean, let's face it, what we started to do, I mean, I started my first company in 1993. Um, it seems like forever ago, right? And the, the business model that I had then just wouldn't hold up right now because times have changed. People have changed. We now have a global economy. We didn't have all of those things. I mean, when I think back, there wasn't even a cell phone when I started my business. You know, remember that old brick phone? I mean, they were just coming out then. So when you think back to how things have changed in business, and not just from a technology standpoint, but from attitudes, I think that we really do have to be adaptable and change with the times. Does anyone want to comment on, you know, the pivoting? Because we've all had to pivot. Lord knows in the last few years, there's been a lot of that happening where we've had to sort of, you know, sit back and take a new perspective. So Susan? Yeah, I think that's a really important part of leadership actually is the ability to pivot and also expect change. And I, I wonder if that's something that needs to be built into our school system actually is for young people to recognize things are going to change and we do need to keep up with that. So pivot, absolutely. And how can it be exciting? 
Susan, become exciting? Susan, I, I think that um, that's a really good point because I was thinking as Jackie was speaking about, you know, we want these, we want our new young workers to come in and be resilient and be adaptable and be able to problem solve. And I think this is where we see parenting of this generation tied in with what kind of workers we're creating because you know, we're doing, there's a lot of helicoptering, there's a lot of snow plowing, which is like parents removing obstacles. Mm -hmm. But I don't give my kids cell phones because I don't want them calling me to solve their problems. And I always say today's problem solvers are tomorrow's leaders. So I let them get their practice as their children. I let my eight-year-old and 10-year-old go skiing on their own like without a parent like i let them go ride their bikes around like I, the 70s called and they want their children back right yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, exactly so i feel like the good old of, days yeah <laughs> like i feel like parents are so the way we're parenting now we're not actually helping our kids to create that resilience and create those problem solving skills that that are so important to jackie's point you know, that's a that's a really great um, perspective, especially being a mom of six. I mean, you know, you've got because no child is the same either. Right. So you've got a whole breadth of kids, you know, male and female that are experiencing different things at different times. And I know that, uh, you know, the people that we would like to have working with us in our companies, uh, we have a very high expectations, especially as entrepreneurs. Right. We, we've set the bar pretty high. Um, do we find the jobs? I mean, we've, we're all looking at a change in dynamics in terms of the in terms of the workforce, and we're seeing things are being done differently. Where do you think the opportunities are for females in paid employment these days? Like, where do you see that there may be fields are opening up to be more accepting, and the pay equity issue is not as prevalent as it was before? Does anyone have any comment on uh, an industry that they see that seems to be open and adaptable? Well, I see. I think there's a lot of the um, utility companies and organizations that are institutional um, are now having to basically open their doors to women, and they can't, really can't offer excuses as to pay that differential if they're doing the same job. Right. So I think you know that's a, a, a burgeoning area. But I think practic almost practically every industry at this point has started to see, you know, in, incremental, you know, differences, if not significant differences. You know, it's not whether you can do the job anymore, it's whether you're going to get paid, you know, the equivalent of men. That is still, uh, you know, a factor in many cases. But women are opening those, those, those doors that heretofore have never been consistent for women, maybe one or two outliers, but now they're really starting to flood. I think too, um, to Susan's point earlier about how breaking the glass ceiling was breaking it for, for herself. And we need to remember that we've got a lot of, we need to make a lot of progress there. That is not what Susan did to herself. That is what society did. So as we're raising our daughters, as we're raising our sons, we need to be raising them um, with more, with more equality, with that being a priority. Women are still making 73 cents to the dollar today. So we do have a long way to go. There's a lot of work to do around pay equity, around um, uh, transparency of pay is a, is a big issue um, for women too. So, I mean, there's that whole notion of get out of your own way, but a lot of this is very systemic and it's been something that we've been raised with. So there is, there's more work to do. And also to that point, I mean, we've all heard the story about how um, 
you know, there'll be a job description that goes out and there's 10 qualifications that you need. A woman will fulfill eight of them and not apply because she doesn't feel she's qualified. A man will have four of them and, and be pretty sure he's going to get it. So there is still a real difference in the way we think and our self-perceptions and our confidence and self-promotion in going out there. That's a really good point, uh, Julie, because I think we can all as women relate to all of those examples that you just gave, right? We've all been in situations where we've looked at the job description and said, oh, no, you know, I don't have that one qualification. They'll never pick me. And, you know, and further to your point, it, it comes from the confidence perspective, right? I mean, I'm sure we all grew up in homes where, you know, we had lots of cheerleaders. We had had very positive role models, but you can't change the systemic society issues that happen outside of the home. The only thing that we can do is keep pushing forward. So I, I'd certainly like to thank each and every one of you for sharing these wonderful examples of breaking the glass ceiling where you've been successful um, and where we are all doing what we can to ensure that we continue to break those glass ceilings for the would-be leaders that are coming behind us. And in closing, what I would like to ask each and every one of you is if you had one word that you could give as a word of advice for our viewing and listening audience, what would that word be? Jackie, let's start with you. Entrepreneurialism. Don't get uh, feel that you have to find a job somewhere else. You can create today with a cell phone and a website and some marketing initiative and maybe some speaking like we encourage people to do at Speakertunity. You know, you can build a, a significant business that support yourself that you never have to depend on anybody else except clients. Oh, so, um, you know, we've talked, we, we've talked about all the other avenues here, but you can really create your own path. That's fantastic. Susan? Trust your instincts. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, we you, all have gut, them, your, right? Your gut knows. Yeah, you're true. Julie? I'm going to say romanticism. And I'm saying this because I do just want people to realize and understand that I think entrepreneurship does get very much romanticized. And, you know, people are like, oh, you wrote a book, you do speaking engagements, you're on TV all the time. And I'm like, I've been in line for 20 years. Yeah. And entrepreneurialism actually looks a lot like making labels till two in the morning in the basement. So just know what you're getting into. <laughs> true. Very true. Anthea? I'm going to say lean into that vision, right? It's always like, what is a vision? What's pulling you forward, even through all the entrepreneurial ups and downs, that roller coaster ride. And, uh, you know, the more you can keep grounding into that, the more you'll be able to manage through all those challenges that occur along the way. Wow, that's really great advice. And I'd like to thank Susan, Julie, Anthea, and Jackie for sharing your heartfelt stories with our viewing and listening audience. We appreciate your honesty and commitment to storytelling, along with your individual contributions to breaking the glass ceiling. I'm Trish Tonai, founder and host for the series. And if you're interested in sharing your business story, visit our website at shareyourstories.online. And if you'd like to connect with one of our guests, you will find their story and contact information in the description portion below. In the meantime, I'd like to invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, or if you're on the move, the podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music. I'd like to thank you for joining us, and we look forward to meeting you next time with another episode of Keeping It Real.